0: Thank you for those who are here again. I hope you are having a good morning. And uh, this is the first week in our Advent series, a couple of weeks here in December, to hone in and focus on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth. This week is part one. We are going to look at Matthew chapter two here this morning, and I want us to look at the very particular, very interesting sort of mysterious characters that we have here known as... The Magi or the wise men, depending on which translation you have in front of you. <laughs> Matthew chapter 2 is our text. The only text in which these men appear. Believe it or not, the first nativity scene can be dated back to the year 1223. The year 1223 it was put together by an Italian monk named St. Francis of Assisi. Now, St. Francis, he put it together, and his was a particularly less elaborate nativity scene. His only had the manger, a couple animals, and the stable. It was quite less elaborate than many nativity scenes that we have nowadays. and Which leads me to say that modern nativity scenes have always struck an odd chord with me. Why? Well, because we put them together, and they're nice, and they're cute, and they're beautiful. But oftentimes, they're very incorrect, biblically speaking. Which is okay. Just know that the shepherds never met the magi. (laughs) Uh, The shepherds and the wise men weren't together with Mary and Jesus around a manger together. Now, I want to talk to you about that. But first of all, let me just preface this by saying, I hope you don't see this or hear this as me being like Ebenezer Scrooge towards your nativity scenes. I don't mean to come across that way. (laughs) But I do hope, I just want to kind of focus... Our thoughts on why do we have the wise men. Why are they here? What have they come to show us? Why are they included in the biblical canon. In the advent of the Christ Christ child. I'm not saying you're sinning. If you put magi and shepherds together. We're going to have them uh, next week here in our own decorations. And it's okay. It's a good thing. It's a nice thing. But I want us to. Realize that all many of the traditions, the history that we have ascribed to these three kings of Orient are, are just that. They're just traditions. And more often, and actually more importantly, that I think that we let those traditions get in the way of what they are even here to show us and to tell us. So that's what I want to look at this morning. In these first 18 verses... These are the only 18 verses in which the Magi appear, at least the Magi that we know. I want to just kind of do a little bit of investigative work here and just kind of see who they were, kind of where they came from, what were they doing, why were they coming at all in the first place. And I think the answer to it will actually be a very important revealing truth about Christmas itself. So, first of all, as we look at this text here this morning, who were these wise men and where did they come from? Well, all that we get, at least according to scripture, in terms of that answer, is the very first verse of our chapter this morning, Matthew 2, where it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. You know, tradition really hurts us in this matter of who these wise men were because uh, you perhaps are, are familiar with that carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, which is sort of the predominant carol which gives us all of the information we could ever know about these wise men, which assumes three things, the assumption that there were three of them, the assumption that they were kings, and the assumption that they were from the Orient, so to speak. And here, if we want to see who they were and where they came from, we have to sort of unpack those assumptions. So the assumption of the number, we've always associated the wise men, the magi, with three. And that's only because in verse 11, they come bearing three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We're never told their number. We're told here that there came wise men. Really, I think there was probably a large caravan of these people. It wasn't just three people coming to see Jesus. But we always assume it because they only tell us about three gifts. And in fact, we've established a biography for these three men. Did you know that they have names? I didn't know that till recently. But apparently the three wise men have names. Melchor, Casper and Balthazar. And we've ascribed each of them a, reason from with, a region from which they've come. Persia, India, and Arabia. Apparently. Tradition tells us that. That only really works if there were three of them. But I think that there was a lot more. Servants, aides. This was a caravan of magi and their servants coming to this scene here. But also, the carol hurts us with their assumption of rank. It says, we three kings... Matthew doesn't tell us what their rank is necessarily, let alone that they were kings. The idea that these magi are kings comes from two Old Testament prophecies. In Isaiah 60 verse 3, also Psalm 72 verses 10 and 11. It talks about kings coming from other nations, Gentile nations to worship. It says, I think in Isaiah 60 verse 3, the brightness of his coming. Now, I think it could be predictive of wise men. Perhaps it is inferring that. But as we will see later on, I think those verses are meant to get us to see something much larger, much bigger that's going on. So hold that thought for a second. The only title Matthew gives us, according to our text, again, is verse 1. That these men were wise men. Or as Pastor Nathan read in his translation, they were magi. It's the Greek word where we get our words magic or magician from. Magi, of course, were an influential school of philosophers and teachers and mystics and astrologers. You might remember that these this is sort of the same word that you will see appearing popping up in the book of Daniel, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Excuse me, the word magi is repeated often in the very first couple chapters where the magi are coming and trying to give counsel, aid to King Nebuchadnezzar. Trying to interpret their dream, his dream. And remember they can't, they're befuddled by it and such is why Daniel is able to interpret it. Magi were that type of advisor to kings. They were employed by them. To give counsel and aid by combining astronomy and medicine and mysticism and spirituality. They were sort of these teachers that meshed up a bunch of different things to try and make sense of things that were going on. They were sorcerers. It's the same word that appears in Acts chapter 13 where we have the story of Elimas the sorcerer in that history of the New Testament church. Of course, magi is a term that was later used in sort of a derogatory way, a demeaning way. It wasn't something that you would ascribe to. Being a magi is much like we would think of the term illusionist illusionist, or mentalist today. They were a trickster. They sort of played with things to try and trick you. Try and fool you with mysticism or magic. Again, that's very relevant. But also the assumption of origin going back to our carol. We three kings of Orient are. When we think of Orient we think of the very far east. And it could be. Most likely though they were probably from Babylon or a place called Medo-Persia. Which is because the word magi was heavily used in that area. Either way it's east of where this scene happens. It's east of Jerusalem. Such is why Matthew says, wise men, magi, came from the east. But it's always struck me so interesting, and this question of who these wise men are, that we've established such elaborate backstories for them. Giving them names, giving them countries of origin, in which nothing appears in the text of scripture at all. Matthew gives no other details about these guys, other than this first verse. (laughs) They were just wise men from the east following this star. Again, that leads us to our next question. What were they doing? What were these wise men doing on this journey? Well, verse 2 kind of gives us a hint and a clue at that. Look at what where it, where it says. Their testimony before King Herod. They say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. So again, these magi, they are astrologers, they have studied the stars. We might even say they are stargazers, as limited as perhaps their ability to look at them was in this day. And it must have been an exceptionally unusual star in order for them to follow it. It must have been something truly captivating in order for them to see that it was different, that it was significant, such that they had to follow it, to track it. If you remember the prophecy which Balaam gives in Numbers chapter 24, he gives a similar prophecy of a star and a scepter rising out of Israel. Perhaps they knew that. Perhaps they remembered their, that own prophecy, And I think it was a combination of a lot of different things. As it was their office, a combination of a bunch of different thoughts and religions and things coming together. They saw this magnificent celestial enigma. And they also applied it to this prophecy of a star rising out of Israel and they determined to follow it. I didn't know this before studying this, but many people don't think that the star of Bethlehem was actually a star. There's a lot of mystery surrounding that, too. Some say it was just a poetic device, that it wasn't even real at all. It was just something that was made up, it was mythical, it was something that just adds some magic. To this scene and this story. Some say it was an alignment of, of the planetary systems. That somehow Jupiter and Venus kind of aligned for a moment in time. And it created this celestial sort of thing in the sky that they saw. Some people say it was a comet. Some people say it was a supernova. Other people say that it was the Shekinah glory of God. Like the God appeared in the wilderness to the Israelites. There was God's glory come down like the pillar of fire that guided them. That sounds cool. (laughs) I don't really know. I can't give you the answer to it. It just says star in our text here this morning. But again, why do we have to explain or rationalize the scripture with our perceived logic of what this was? Whatever the star was, God's hand was in it and guiding it. He is the creator of the stars. He suspended them in their place and he can stop them in their tracks. Whatever this celestial thing was, he was sovereign over it. He had perfectly and purposely designed it for this specific moment in time. To show us what? Again, show us his incredible sovereignty. Sovereignty. They were following this star of Bethlehem. But that leads us to a third question. When did they make this journey? Well, again, evidence comes from our text. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding (laughs) wroth... He's very angry, he's very upset, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. This violent decree of King Herod gives us sort of a time frame of when this happened. If you jump back in the text, Herod is disturbed. Look at verse 3. Herod the king, when he heard these things, he was troubled. He heard the testimony of the Magi, of this king of the Jews, which they declared him to be, and he is troubled. And it says, and all Jerusalem with him. He's not flustered by this magical star. He's flustered by the idea that the Jews promised Messiah was here. He is flummoxed, he is troubled, he is deeply disturbed in himself. Because now there's two corroborating testimonies of the Messiah, the king of the Jews, has come. Because look at verses 5 and 6. He gets together with his own scribes and priests. It says, and they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it was written by the prophet. And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. They're of course hearkening back to Micah chapter 5 verse 2 you might recall. In the prediction of the mess of the Messiah coming out of Bethlehem. He is now stirred in himself, distressed, troubled. He's fearing over this Messiah, the Christ, the king who is here. Why? Because he's fearing for his throne. He's fearing for his seat as a Roman ruler and governor here. And he doesn't want to give it up. He's afraid of any and all threats of power. Such is why we see here again in verse 7 where he conspires with the magi to spy out where this king is. He says, then Herod, when he had privily, secretly called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Here again. He's using these magi as spies, as covert agents, we might say. He's not really looking to worship Jesus He's looking to find out where he is. That he may snuff him out and squash him. Because he wants to squash any threat to his seat of power. But keep reading in our text. When they heard, verse 9, that the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. In verse 11, they fall and they worship Jesus, the Christ, as a young child. And then in verse 12, jump there, he says, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. They're supernaturally warned by God. To avoid returning to Herod. And of course that leads us back again to our verse 16. Which is why Herod is so wroth. (laughs) He's so incensed and enraged. Because the actions of these magi here is a mockery of his supremacy. They're mocking him by avoiding him. By disobeying his decree. So Herod in his wisdom, his Flawed, raging wisdom here uh, uses his inquiry with the wise men. And that's what makes him send out this ruinous decree to have all the children, it says, that were in and around Bethlehem massacred. It led him to estimate Jesus' age. Jesus, of course, now is a little bit older than in the events of Luke chapter 2. What's interesting though, when I was reading about Herod, I came across this interesting uh, anecdote, I guess you might say, from a historian, an old historian. I think it might have been Josephus. But he said, it is better to be Herod's sow or female pig than Herod's son, This event in Herod's life isn't out of his character. Herod at this time was known for fits of jealousy and rage and suspicion and cruelty, such that he had murdered his own wife and several of his sons. This was very much in keeping with his character, such that he is murdering all around Bethlehem. Why? Because he's coveting his power. He's coveting his seat as a Roman governor and he doesn't want any sort of rumors going around that the Messiah was here. Why? Because it would lead to another Jewish revolt. It would lead to another Jewish uprising. Such is why he seeks to squash it by leading this decree, sending it out, massacring all those that were in and around Bethlehem. This is sort of the when here of this Of this story, this unknown interval we have here between Luke 2 and Matthew chapter 2. It comes from this decree of Herod. It comes from verse 11 where the magi come into it says Mary's house. And also the designation it gives Jesus himself where it says in verse 9. Where the star came and stood where the young child was. You'll notice if you flip to Luke 2 you don't have to now. But there's a different term used in the Greek there. The word babe which means literally newborn baby. Here this word young child literally means one that is an infant. Recently born. Not perhaps two years old but definitely not weeks or hours old. Again. They are coming here after all of the events of Luke 2. And they are coming here to worship this king. But again we have to ask why. This is the most interesting question to me. Why were they so stirred by the prophecy and the star to come and worship this one king of the Jews. Perhaps one that they didn't even really know or believe in all the way. They didn't know exactly what it meant that he was king of the Jews. So why to make this journey? Why did they bring gifts? Why are they included here for us? If you just take out this story, would it make a difference in Jesus' life? Would it make a difference in our understanding of Advent? Would it make a difference if we didn't have the Magi in our nativity scenes? <laughs> well, I think it would. Because I think the answers to what Matthew is doing here, by including the story, go back to uh, what Matthew is trying to do throughout his entire gospel. He's trying to show who Jesus is, the King. And we see here, this scene fulfills several of God's promises. Because notice in verse 13 and it says and when they were departed when the wise men departed behold the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Reminds me of Isaiah 53 again where it talks about Jesus being the man of sorrows we see that he is a man of sorrows from his very birth. Not just on the cross did he endure sorrow. But from the very time he entered this world. He was a man of sorrows. Whom no one noticed. Whom no one adored except for some filthy shepherds and foreign stargazers. And here his life is being put in jeopardy. He's being forced to flee. And notice verse fourteen, because it says When he arose he took the young child and his mother by the night by night, excuse me, and departed into Egypt, and there and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. It's so fascinating to me that Matthew, the writer of this gospel, links this escape out of Bethlehem to Egypt to the prophecy of Hosea 11 and of Exodus. If you remember, Hosea 11.1 talks about uh, how God would bring his son Israel out of Egypt, which again is what happens in the great Exodus in that book. And here he is saying that this king, this Jesus, he's the true and better Israel. He's the true and better son of God. Who himself comes out of Egypt to save the world from its sins. It's fulfilling prophecy here. But also, this entire scene. The thing that jumps out to me so much is God's incredibly sovereign initiative in our lives. What do I mean by that? That it's just that no part of this story was outside of the bounds of his control. And yet, what does he look like? He looks like a chubby, wailing, crying infant. And yet he is sovereign. Yet he is master over it all. God's sovereignty is not stunted or stopped by his human frame. Yes, even though he was an infant, he was still king. He was still sovereign. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said that this scene is sovereignty clothed in the robes of mercy. And such is, I think, what this scene is trying to show us. Is showing us that in this incarnation, in the whole fact of God becoming flesh, He's not reducing His character, He's showing more of His glorious nature. Jesus was not somehow less than God because He became a baby. He is even as a baby, even as an infant, a young child here. He was the fullness of God in a human body. He was the incarnate God in all of his glory and majesty and supremacy in the form of a little infant. He is the king. This baby bouncing on the knee of his mother Mary. Is the king of kings and the lord of lords. What an incredible image. What an incredible picture. In fact I I was struck by the hymn that we sang this morning. Where it says. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born as a human, and yet at the same time sovereign over everything. And that's exactly what this scene shows us. The scene with the Magi, it shows us that this young child, this young baby here, was the promised and predicted Christ. Again, it's the theme of Matthew. He's the true and better king. And one day, there's a day coming when people everywhere will acknowledge that he is the king. They will worship and they will bow down before him. And they will have to. Why? Because he is the king of everything. Remember those glorious verses from Philippians chapter 2. Let me just read them for you quickly this morning. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul is writing, he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what this scene is prefiguring. The day in which every knee will realize that Jesus is the king. And for some it will be too late. For some, they will realize it too late. Such is what those Old Testament verses, I think, were hearkening towards. Let me read them to you. Isaiah 60 verse 3 says this. And the Gentiles shall come to the light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. In Psalm 72 verses 10 and 11. They again point to this coming day when Jesus himself, Jesus the Christ, will be seen as the king of all. Psalm 72, excuse me, verses 10 and 11. The kings of Tarshish and all the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Why? Because he is the king. Those verses I think point to this moment in time. Not just this moment when the wise men came. But the moment in the day that is coming. The day that is beyond even us. When every single knee will bow at the sight of King Christ. At the sight of this one who is Lord of all. The creator and ruler of every single thing. Saved and unsaved alike. Will one day do exactly as the Magi do here. Bow in homage to this King Jesus. And such as I think the beautiful point of this entire story. It shows the wideness. The deepness of the mercy of God. That all nations all tongues, all people from all around the world can come to this king and worship him. It's pointing to that day when Christ the king will collect all of those whom he has redeemed, yes, from out of every nation and kindred and tongue and all will fall down and worship him for eternal life everlastingly in glory with him. This is the beautiful power and beautiful picture of this moment again, it harkens back to what we 've been going through in the Gospel of Mark, the unexpectedness of this king he 's not born in a palace he 's not born among uh, royal royalty he 's born in a manger. he has peasants for parents and foreign Astrologers and mystics come to adore him at his birth. And here we see that even that unexpected Lord is the savior and king of all. I love the story of the Magi. I love the story that they show. That one and all can come to this king. That there's no barrier that makes you afraid. That can hinder you. He is sovereign over all. And he is sovereign to relieve you from all of your sins. Because he is the king. He's the king of it all. And this king was bouncing on his mother's knee. (laughs) I think about this moment every single time I look at my son Braxton. (laughs) And to think that that... That's what Jesus did for us. That's the frame he came to. So weak and frail and innocent and dependent. As dependent as a baby is upon its mother. That's as dependent as Jesus was on his mother. And what was he doing in that moment? He was coming to be like you and I. A human so that he can make us like he is. Righteous in every way. This little child is the king of it all. And he's the king that we have come to worship. He's the king that we have come to to adore here this morning. Born a child and yet a king. Let us pray this morning. As we bow our heads and close our eyes. I wish to speak to you for a moment. Speak to you. Quickly, just about this king, this king who has come for you, this infant king. The one who magi came to worship, this same infant king is the one who would later ascend the cross for you and for I. Through his very death, this baby's death, that is where the remission of sins comes from. Do you know him as your king? Do you worship him as your Lord and your Savior this morning? I pray this morning that you would be moved to see him rightly. To see him truly. To see him as he is.